Today's scripture reading comes from Acts chapter 10, verses 30 through 48. Listen now to the word of the Lord. And Cornelius said, Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms have been remembered before God. Send, therefore, to Joppa, and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. The word of the Lord. The Lord be with you. Thank you. Um, before I begin, I just want to make uh, one announcement. As you know, uh, next week is Mother's Day. Um, and so I'm asking uh, every member of this congregation, uh, young people and older people, uh, to post a picture of you and your mom. So um, we all have had or have a mother whether biological, adoptive, or spiritual. And so uh, children, uh, maybe you can ask your uh, dads to help you find a good picture of you and your mom. Uh, adults, um, I would ask you also please to post a picture of you with your mom, um, maybe when you were a child, or a more recent picture uh, if you have one. And so the link uh, to where you can post, um, oh, there it is. So uh, if you can remember that, uh, that's where you can post it. Uh, that link will also be available at the, uh, on the Wednesday Word this week. 
And so uh, if you can post it by Wednesday, uh, Wednesday evening, uh, I would greatly appreciate it so that our staff, uh, that's me, uh, can have enough time uh, to uh, put that together, okay? So uh, please uh, submit uh, everyone. I'd love to uh, just have a picture from every single person uh, and we'll show that during next week's service. All right, please pray with me. Lord, we thank you again for this day that you have made and for an opportunity to gather in your house with your people and to hear your word. So now, God, in the hearing of your word, help us to discover something about you, something that will give us more life. Lead us into the freedom and into the truth and into the joy of your presence. We ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our risen Lord. Amen. Last week, uh, you might remember that the, we concluded the Gospel of Matthew with Jesus giving the Great Commission to go into all the world to make disciples of all nations. And the book of Acts, which follows the four Gospels, then tells the story of the fledgling church as it struggles to fulfill that last commission that Jesus gives to his disciples. Our reading today is one of those stories that we should know better because it is the pivotal moment in which the church moves from a largely uh, Jewish, Jerusalem-centered church into one that will become increasingly uh, focused to the ends of the earth and Gentile in nature. It's so important that Luke devotes 66 verses uh, in the book of Acts to this story. It's the longest narrative in the book of Acts. And in effect, he repeats the story three times, twice in chapter 10 and a third time in the uh, following chapter. And what we heard was the second of the three tellings of Cornelius giving testimony of what has happened. Before our reading, though, at the beginning of the 10th chapter, we learn that Cornelius is a centurion of the Italian cohort stationed in Caesarea. Caesarea was the headquarters of the Roman occupation of Palestine. And a centurion, as the name suggests, was an officer in charge of 100 soldiers. A group of 100 soldiers back then was known as a century, so a centurion was in charge of a century. Six centuries made up a cohort, and then 10 cohorts made up the Roman legion. And so Cornelius is a Gentile military leader, as well as a man of some means. He has servants, he has status. Uh, he's an important person. But more importantly than that, he is described by Luke as a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. This is a very pious man. He is a God-fearer. This is a technical term, meaning someone who is sympathetic to Jewish beliefs, but who has not gone in uh, entirely. He has not become Jewish. He has not been circumcised. He doesn't follow strictly the dietary laws. But in all other ways, he's, a, he's an observant Jew in following many of their customs. And so one day he says during his prayers, he has a vision in which he is told to send for Peter, who is staying with a man by the name of Simon by the sea in Joppa. And so he sends his servants to uh, fetch Peter with the message of his vision. Peter 
meanwhile, is having a parallel vision. He's also praying and he also hears heavenly voices. And he's distracted by hunger. I love this little detail because, you know, I love the fact that he's trying to pray and all I can think about is food, right? It's, it's like when you're fasting, right? That, that's all you think about, right? It's our spirituality wrapped up in our humanity. We pray and we get hungry. We get distracted. And so in Peter's vision, he sees this giant sheet. And, and the word for sheet here can mean sail. And remember, you know, they're, they're by the sea. So maybe he's seeing a giant sail descending from heaven, filled with all kinds of animals, reptiles, birds, filled with what he understands to be clean and unclean animals. And the voice commands him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And unlike Cornelius, who immediately obeyed the word that he heard, Peter refuses. He says, no way. I am not going to start eating unkosher foods now. I've never touched this stuff. I'm not going to start. Peter apparently forgot what Jesus had told him earlier regarding unclean foods. In Mark 7, for example, Jesus said, Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus, he declared all foods clean. He declared all foods clean. And the voice from heaven commands him three times. And yet each time Peter refuses. And then the giant sheet was taken up into the heavens. Peter is not entirely sure what he's seeing. He doesn't understand. But the spirit tells him, three men will come for you and you are to go with them without hesitation because God has sent them. So then Cornelius' envoy uh, meets him. He invites them into his home as guests, and then he accompanies them to Caesarea the next day. I know that what might be interesting or more interesting for us is the fact that two men were having these parallel visions. They're hearing angelic voices and being directed, you know, in kind of a mysterious way. But what surprised the church, the early church, and the thing that they were most interested in was the level of fellowship and hospitality that is being extended between Jews and Gentiles. Peter is staying with someone who works as a tanner. That's a very important detail. Um, a, a tanner is not someone who's working at a tanning salon. Uh, a tanner is someone who works with uh, animal hides, uh, preparing them to, uh, for leather, uh, right? And so this process, as I understand it, it's quite noxious. And uh, it would be located, these uh, tanning mills would be located at the outskirts of town because no one wanted to be near them. And for a Jew, like, you can't touch the stuff because it's unclean. You would want to, you know, stay away from it. And yet here's Peter uh, staying with Simon, another guy named Simon, um, who is a tanner. Presumably now, we have to assume, because this Simon was a Gentile, but is now a Christian brother. So, so he's crossed one small border here. Peter has received hospitality from a Gentile. And then he welcomes Gentile visitors into his home. And then 
he goes with them into the home of Cornelius. Right? So he's crossing all sorts of borders between Jews and Gentiles. And this is quite unusual. In fact, Peter says to Cornelius once he's welcomed, acknowledging this oddness, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. Right? He's acknowledging like this is, this is not supposed to happen. But then he goes on to say, but God has shown me that I should not call anyone common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. And it's then that Peter gives him his testimony, uh, which you heard in the reading today. What I was really struck by uh, this week were Peter's first words in response to Cornelius' testimony. After Cornelius tells him what has happened, Peter says, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. That God shows no partiality might be an acceptable or an accepted truth for you. But Peter and his fellow Jews grew up their entire lives believing that in fact God is not impartial, but that God favors and is partial to the Israelites over and against every other nation. That God had chosen Israel as a special people. In Exodus 19, for example, God says, Now therefore, if you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. Clearly, partiality. Not only that, in the scriptures, we know that God repeatedly, clearly favors one person or one people over another. In Malachi 1, for example, we hear the word of God. I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated that's partiality. God favors Isaac over Ishmael, David over Saul, and so on and so on. Liberation theologians talk about God's preferential option for the poor, that God favors the weak, the marginalized. And Jesus in his own life and ministry was certainly partial to the sick, to the sinners, to others who are outcasts. His partiality was what was criticized. He eats with sinners. He hangs out with the riffraff. That was the accusation leveled against him. He showed partiality. Now, unlike our partiality, right, like we are partial to people, you know, who are beautiful, who are powerful, who can do us a favor. It's a different kind of partiality, but it's there nevertheless. And so what Peter comes to understand in this moment is not that God does not show any partiality, but that when it comes to acceptability before God, whether you're a Gentile or whether you're a Jew, has no bearing in God. That's something that Jesus had taught, but Peter did not really understand. Jesus had told him to make disciples of all nations, of all nations. He also said, you shall be my witnesses in Samaria and in Judea, and to the ends of the earth, to everyone. But apparently it went in one ear and out the other. And it's not surprising in the case of Peter. As you know, he doesn't listen very well to God. 
right? Even during this vision, he refused to obey God's voice three times. It's amazing, right? He refused to obey three times. And now at last, and here, this is, this is the, the incredible thing for me. Only now, in this final moment, after he hears Cornelius' testimony, he is able to say, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. Now I get it, he says. And so I want to reflect with you uh, this morning. The, the process in which God uses to have Peter arrive at this truth for himself and suggest that perhaps it's the same process that God is using with us so that we might also come to truths about him for ourselves. First, we can notice that God uses regular times of spiritual exercise and practice to begin this process. We're told that Cornelius prayed continually that this was a normal practice. And we also know from earlier passages in the book of Acts that Peter also prayed regularly at prescribed hours of prayer. They both received their visions during the exercise of their regular devotional life. While there is no guarantee nor a direct causal link between personal piety leading to great visions, there are enough examples in the Bible to suggest that there is an interplay between human piety and divine favor. The piety of Cornelius certainly played some bearing on him receiving a vision and not someone else. I think most of you can attest to this kind of experience. Uh, many of you, for example, during uh, the season of Lent, we gather to pray together, we pray through the Psalms together, and in that time together, you discover new insights about the Psalms, about prayer, about yourself, and about God. You had those experiences. It may not have been as spectacular as hearing a voice from heaven, but it was a meaningful word from God that you heard. And you heard that because you prayed, because you were there in the exercise of that spiritual discipline. God has ordained regular means of grace. God can certainly do the unexpected out of the ordinary, but God has ordained regular means of grace. It's in regular times, in the routine times of worship, of prayers, of personal devotional time, and other spiritual disciplines that God will ordinarily speak to us. Another way of saying this is that those who keep on asking tend to receive, that those who keep on seeking will find, and that those who keep on knocking, for them the door will be opened. Secondly, we notice here that God uses the interaction with others to continue this process of genuine revelation. Peter came to truly understand, as he says, to truly understand God's impartiality in conversation with Cornelius. Peter had heard Jesus tell him this truth repeatedly throughout his life. But apparently, it was not enough to hear Jesus tell him again and again. Peter himself had preached this very message. His first message in the book of Acts, in Acts 2, he quotes from Joel 2, where he said, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord 
shall be saved. So he knows this in his head. He's known this in his, in his mind. Like he knows this truth that everyone, that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be he's, he's preached it. Peter was aware of the impartiality of God, at least in some abstract or theological doctrinal sense. But now, in his encounter with Cornelius, he says, now I truly, now I really get it. He, he's, he's really perceiving. It's becoming real and tangible and concrete, not just kind of a, an idea that's been floating around in his head. Think about how slow and how long it's taken Peter to come to this understanding. He spent years, years, I mean, think about it. He spent years living and walking with Jesus the son of God, the greatest teacher ever. And he didn't get it. I hope that's an encouragement to any one of you involved in teaching, right? Like, I mean, Jesus couldn't get through to Peter. He had visions, heavenly voices, telling him three times about clean and unclean animals, and that God has declared, you know, what God has declared clean, you should not consider unclean. It, it, I was thinking, like, you know, God shouldn't have used animals. God should have just used people, because Peter didn't seem to make the connection with, like, oh, animals, people, right? He didn't get it. Maybe God should have just said, hey, Peter, you know, don't use this analogy. Just say, I am impartial. Preach the message to all the people. Like, maybe God should have just done that. In addition to that, I mean, he's been living with a Gentile. <laughs> he received Gentiles in welcome. He's walked into, I mean, he's doing all these things and yet he didn't quite get it. It's only when he hears the testimony of Cornelius, when all this kind of comes together, that the light bulb goes on and he says, truly, now I understand that God is impartial. Now I get it. Their very interaction testifies to the truth that has been revealed. That God shows no partiality is not simply a doctrinal statement, but it has dramatic implications for their lives and their life together. If God is not partial, that means that I cannot be partial. If God loves Cornelius, then I have to love Cornelius. So we see here not simply a double vision of Peter and Cornelius, but we have here a double conversion. It's not just Cornelius who is converted. Peter too undergoes a conversion, a transformation. In this interaction, both men are changed. I hope again that this is an encouragement to you. God patiently and repeatedly prepares Peter to perceive the truth over a period of time so that he can come to the truth himself. And this is how we usually come to the realization of anything meaningful and truthful in our lives, right? We hear something that might be true. We might even accept it. But it's only over time, over conversation, over testimony and perhaps debates and experience that we come not only to know the truth in our minds intellectually, but to actually embody it and to begin to live that truth in our lives. You know, I can tell you uh, as a preacher, uh, I've preached a lot of truths um, over the years, um, but many of them I've only come to realize 
years and years later, as I begin to live out some of those truths, um, because I, I, I have to kind of live them, especially, you know, the things that I preached about community, about encouraging one another, a lot of, like, I, I know that in my head, and I know it's true, um, but, but it's, it's taken decades for me to really begin to, and I'm still working on it, of course, where it becomes a part of, of who I am and what it really means to be God's people. Uh, I can also tell you that, you know, this is, this is my hope uh, when I'm teaching a confirmation class, for example, um, and when we're trying to have the children get confirmed, I know that they hear me say things like God loves them, that they are sinners in need of a savior, that everyone is their brother or their sister, right? They, they hear these truths from me and from you, uh, from the congregation. And I know they can repeat those words, right? And I know that they have some understanding uh, in their minds, but it will take them many, many more interactions over many, many more years before it becomes something really genuine and, and seeping into every pore of their body. It will take time before it becomes a part of who they really are. Last night at the uh, praise, uh, prayer, and testimony night, uh, you know, I was so encouraged, and I think everyone else was as well, when Lena shared about her life, and, and she said something. She said, you know, you got to be in it for the long game. you got to be in it for the long game because she talked about how important it has been for her to be in this particular church for more than half of her life, right? That over the, the, the decades, all the different people in her life who impacted her, all the interactions that she's had here that has shaped and reshaped her faith, right? If I can paraphrase her a little bit, right? It was those interactions with all of us, every one of us, all the tears and joys, all the sorrows and heartaches, all the laughter, all of that was required to form who she is and for her to come to the understanding of faith as she has today. I know that sometimes, uh, you know, we, we like to hear dramatic testimony of like, you know, very stark before and after, right? Like this instantaneous moment where people see the light and they go from being one kind of person to another. And, and we think sometimes that you know, conversion is like that, right? That there's this sort of instantaneous moment in time. But even in a dramatic conversion like Paul's, or Cornelius, it's just the beginning of the story. It's just the first step of their lifelong journey of faith. It has to be this way because sin is so deeply rooted in us because we have been told a false narrative about who we are by the world, by our parents, by ourselves. We tell ourselves the wrong story over and over again that one lifetime is far too short for us to rewrite that story and for us all to become the joyful, grace-filled, loving people that God intends for us as a people. We are always a work in progress with others, with the interaction of others. And this is why, you know, you have to come to church. You have to come to church. 
You have to get involved in the life of the church. You have to go on mission trips. You have to come and sit in on the Bible studies with Mr. Charles. You have to come early and eat a donut with me. You have to come and stick around and and put away the chairs and help clean up. It's vital that you not only have regular times of prayers and devotions at home by yourself, but that you interact with others in conversation. Whether it's Wednesday prayer meetings, our monthly prayer walks, the FGs, or Sunday worship, it's through the interaction with others that God's truth begins to stick that it becomes concrete so that you can say, ah, now I get it. Truly, I understand that God shows no impartiality. And I think like Peter and Cornelius, you'll find that it's often the people you don't expect and maybe the people you least expected to interact with and perhaps people that you don't even like who are gonna be really instrumental in the reshaping of your faith. Third and last, Spiritual disciplines and human interactions are important and necessary in in the process of truth and for us grasping the truth about God. But by far the most important piece of all of this process is the involvement of the Holy Spirit. Did you notice that Peter makes this declaration? He says, truly I understand that God shows no partiality and then he gives a sermon which in my opinion, does not support his claim very well. It's not a terrible sermon. He talks about Jesus, right? But the sermon doesn't really, you know, address the point he just made, that God shows no impartiality, right? If I'm going to preach a sermon about God shows no impartiality, there are a lot of passages in the Bible he could have pulled out, right? He could have pulled out verses uh, where Jesus says, you know, you shall be my witnesses, right, in all the world, He could have pulled out uh, words of Jesus where he says, um, um, when I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself, right? There, There are lots of passages that Peter could have used. But instead, he's talking about Israel and Judea. I'm like, man, well, why are you doing that? Like, they don't, he's not Jewish, right? He doesn't want to hear about Jerusalem. And at the end, you know, he, get, he finally gets to at the end, he says, to him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him, ah, now, okay, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And I love what happens next. Verse 44, when Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. It's like the Holy Spirit's like, Peter, stop, stop. You're killing me here. And the Spirit just comes and they hear and they understand for themselves. You know, I love that because I can tell you that as a preacher, um, I I really take great comfort in this. The sermon wasn't very good. It missed the opportunity to make the point. But the spirit interrupted and made sure that those who were present understood and experienced the truth of what Peter was trying to say. And as I've gotten older, I know that that's my only hope every Sunday, that God's spirit somehow will interrupt and fill your hearts. You know, when I was a younger preacher, I thought I can be clever enough, I can be insightful, I can study, and and I can convince you of the truths of God if I do my job. And I know now that it has to be the God's, it has to be the Spirit of God. The God's Spirit is the one who has to speak to you and break into your 
life and heart and speak. And for me, this is, again, one of those truths that I'm now beginning to more truly understand what God is doing in my life and in the life of this congregation. From beginning to end, Peter's story, your story, my story, it's all initiated and controlled by the Spirit of God. God acts unilaterally. There's no negotiation here. There's no discussion. It's all grace. No one does anything to deserve God's favor in this scenario. No one did any good works. No one even repented in any traditional sense. Peter's sermon wasn't that great. All they did was show up and listen to someone who tried to explain what's going on, like you're doing now, and the people present, the Gentiles, they experienced a second Pentecost. It's all up to God. The book of Acts is often read and interpreted as a series of Acts of the Apostles, as a story of the church's obedience to God's final command to be his faithful witnesses throughout the world. But really, it's not about the Acts of the Apostles at all. It's really about the acts of the Holy Spirit. It's not about the church being obedient. Far from it. You know, the the book of Acts, they are not. But it's about the, the Spirit's presence in the life of the church. And despite the reluctance and hesitation and mistakes, the Spirit directs the church toward that which is good and perfect will of God. It's the spirit who does the work, who is the one that is in control of all that is going on. And it's quite ridiculous if you think about it, the lengths that God goes to do this. Uh, Most of you probably uh, don't remember this, but back in 2016, I gave a sermon about Jonah and I mentioned that God exerted a ridiculous amount of resources to teach one man a lesson, right? God wasted, right? God wasted a storm, a giant fish, uh, a, a plant, and even a worm, right? I mean, God expended an enormous amount of resources, a ridiculous amount, to teach one man a lesson. And you might remember that when God called Jonah, He called him to go and preach to the Ninevites, a people whom Jonah considered to be his enemies. And he was very reluctant to go. And so Jonah wanted to run away. So instead of going to Nineveh, he went down to Joppa to catch a ship to Tarshish to get as far away from God as he could. And do you notice here? Now the Spirit of God is moving again to call Peter with the same task. The same task. And it's also originating in the city of Joppa. It's remarkable, isn't it? I mean, this is not a random coincidence. In Matthew 16, Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? Who am I, he said. And Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He got the right answer. Now, again, he didn't know what that really meant, but he got the right answer. And Jesus said to Peter, blessed are you, Simon, 
Bar-Jonah, son of Jonah. The first disciple to recognize the claim and the truth upon which Jesus will build a church had a father whose name was Jonah. Peter is the spiritual heir, the spiritual son of Jonah the prophet. And the spirit has come full circle now and now sends another son from the city of Joppa to Caesarea now to discover the truth for himself that God indeed is impartial. The message that Jonah did not want to preach, Peter now gets to preach to Cornelius. This is really the only hope for the church. On our own, by our wisdom, by our strength, by our strategies, our resources, we will utterly and spectacularly fail as the history of the church has repeatedly shown us. It's only when the church listens to the spirit in regular times of worship and in encounters with one another that we resemble anything like what God intends for us. And I see in Peter's growth hope for all of us. In the next chapter, Peter will go on to defend the inclusion of the Gentiles, which he has resisted, to the church leadership in Jerusalem, concluding with these words. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? He recognized the same gifting of the Spirit and he acknowledged the truth that indeed God shows no impartiality. It'd be great if that were the end of the story and everybody lived happily ever after. But of course, that's not the way it goes, is it? But it is one step in the right direction. And the Apostle Paul will later further affirm God's impartiality when he will write to the Galatians, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. And he will also write to the Romans, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Habits and traditions, prejudices, false narratives, false beliefs requires a lot of work to change. Wrong ideas about God are especially difficult to overcome. Spiritual disciplines, interactions with others, and the outrageous workings of the Holy Spirit are necessary. Now, we cannot control the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will do the work that the Spirit wants to do. We have no control over the Spirit but we can expose ourselves to the movement of the spirit through the regular practices of spiritual disciplines and through the interaction with others. We can be obedient to spiritual promptings. We can be open to others. We can extend hospitality. We can mutually share visions and testimonies and conversations and have life together, and so then join in the movement in fulfilling the will of God. So I would exhort you today to be patient with one another. Don't be overcome by frustration 
with those who have wrong beliefs. Instead, encourage one another towards spiritual disciplines, extend hospitality, and be open to hear God's spirit and see how the spirit of God will change not only you, but those you consider to be on the outside. May it be so. Please pray with me. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the example of Peter and of Cornelius, how in their life, that through the exercise of spiritual disciplines, in their interaction with one another, and in the grand choreography of your spirit, they were brought together, mutually encouraged and transformed to discover the truth about you together. And so God, I would ask that in our life together, help us to be in it for the long game, to continue with our daily exercises and to value these interactions, small and great, with one another. And we would invite you, Holy Spirit, to convert each and every one of us, to help each and every one of us become more aligned with the truth of who you are. Help us to live out the truths, truly, to truly understand what it means to be your children. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen.